0: This is the Thoughts From a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works and others in the book world about their jobs, what those jobs entail, and the books that they love. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Today, I am chatting with Alice Henderson about a blizzard of polar bears. In addition to being a writer, Alice is a wildlife sanctuary monitor, geographic information system specialists, and works in bioacoustics. She documents wildlife on specialized recording equipment, checks remote cameras, creates maps, and undertakes wildlife surveys to determine what species are present on preserves, while ensuring there are no signs of poaching. She surveyed for the presence of grizzlies, wolves, wolverines, jaguars, endangered bats, and more. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Before we dive in, if you are looking for your next thriller or whodunit, you should listen to Killer Content, a podcast hosted by Emily Webb. Here is some more information about it.
1: I ended up getting uh, stuck in the back of a trailer in the trailer park with a guy with a gun one night when I got a little little bit careless maybe following somebody, and um, I knew I wasn't going to get killed, but I, you know, it, was, it wasn't a pleasant night. If you're always looking for your next thriller, chiller, or it, join me, Emily Webb, for killer content inside The Crime Writer's Mind, where I'll be talking to crime-obsessed authors about how they create their characters, their stories, and their crime scenes.
0: I've always wanted to set one of my thrillers on an island because the great thing about setting on an island is that it can be magical and beautiful particularly during the day and when everything is fine but at night and if there's a storm and you can't leave the island and no one else can get to you
1: because the ferry's actually shut down there's no escape Pillar Content is a Smartfella production made in conjunction with the ACAST Creator Network.
0: Welcome, Alice. How are you today?
1: I'm good, Cindy. Thank you so much for having me.
0: I am so glad you are here again. I always love chatting books with you and nature and wild animals, so I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. Me too. So you are now on book two, A Blizzard of Polar Bears. Would you like to tell me a little bit about it?
1: Sure. So A Blizzard of Polar Bears takes place just after the first book, A Solitude of Wolverines. So Alex Carter, my wildlife biologist protagonist, she's fresh off her wolverine study in Montana. And she gets a gig studying the Western Hudson Bay polar bear population in the Canadian Arctic. So she goes out there where she's embedded with a small team. And she studies the bears out on the ice. So she has a helicopter pilot and a grad student, and they fly over the ice, and Alex has a tranquilizer gun that she's leaning precariously out of the helicopter with, and they'll tag the bears, and then they land and study the bears and take measurements and check their health. So everything's going well, and then suddenly things start to go awry. Her helicopter pilot unexpectedly quits. Equipment goes missing. And someone breaks into her lab and steals the samples she's collected. So she's starting to think someone wants her study to end, but she manages to find a replacement pilot, and she's very determined to see this out. But then their helicopter crashes out on the ice due to sabotage, so they're stranded on this vast ice sheet, and armed assailants are moving in. And now Alex realizes someone is willing to kill to end her study.
0: I absolutely loved the polar bear parts of the story. I was just completely fascinated with them. And I thought, what a cool job to be the one who darts the polar bear and then gets close to them. What kind of research did you do for this book?
1: So I did a lot of painstaking research. I believe very strongly in having accurate science in these sorts of books. So I myself have spent months up in the Canadian Arctic. So the landscape and just Being out in this environment, what does it smell like? What does it look like? What is the weather like? What are the trees like? And then I talked to some research scientists who are out there on the ice at Hudson Bay darting these polar bears. So I asked them all of these really fine detailed questions about how you tranquilize the bear. What's the safest way to do it? What sorts of measurements do you collect? And then what tests do you run on them? So I did a lot of reading, a lot of academic papers I read about the sorts of data you can get from, say, claw samples, um, and they just shave off a little bit of a claw. They don't remove the claw. And hair samples, for example, milk samples from mother polar bears, fat samples and things like that. And what you can learn in terms of what pollutants are in their systems, for example, or how healthy are they? Are they
0: underweight? So how much of that in terms of the underweight and the health part of it is
1: actually happening? It's actually a little worse than I have it in the book. Oh, that's not good. I was hoping you
0: were going to say it was the other way around. There are
1: 19 subpopulations of polar bears on the planet, and some are none of them are faring well. Some are doing worse than others. So recent research of these 19 subpopulations of polar bears now show that all of them, are likely going to be gone by the end of the century, especially if we continue with business as usual. And legislation is so slow moving forward for climate change that it's looking really dire for all of the populations.
0: That is terrible, first and foremost, and so sad. And then second of all, with respect to what you're saying, what is a subpopulation? I should probably know that, but I'm not sure that I could identify what that is.
1: It's basically polar bears that live in different regions. So the Beaufort Sea, for example, has a polar bear population, and then you've got the Chukchi Sea population, Western Hudson Bay population. So they're groups of polar bears that don't necessarily mix with each other, and they live all around the circumpolar region.
0: I just found it fascinating reading about the polar bears. I've always been so intrigued with them you brought it all to life. And I think it's because, as you said, you had been there and were able to see all of that and make it feel like, you know, I was on the ice as you were writing everything. I loved that. Thank you so much. You've had very exciting news because A Solitude of Wolverines was a Barnes and Noble Book of the Month pick in October, correct?
1: It was. Well, tell me about that. That was so exciting. So Barnes and Noble, they have six picks each month. And And each one is in a different category. So A Solitude of Wolverines was their mystery thriller pick of the month for October, which meant that in every Barnes & Noble store nationwide, there was a special table with my book on it and signage. So it was was wonderful to walk into a store and see that. And I signed stock and it was just wonderful to hear from readers. And I was really honored that they chose that book.
0: Well, and I remember last year when we spoke, you were just starting out with social media. And that was kind of a novelty for you. And then I saw you add on to Twitter at some point because we follow each other there and I love all of your pictures. But what was it like once you were picked by Barnes and Noble? Were you just getting people right and left tagging you and commenting and posting pictures of your book?
1: I was. It was amazing. I was so touched. My Instagram just exploded with Photos both from Barnes and Noble stores and bookstagrammers who were reading the book. And people took these beautiful photos of the book in different settings. You know how bookstagrammers really stage their book photographs in elegant ways. So it was just so neat to see the book just take off like that. And I just had so much fun responding to readers and thanking them for these wonderful photos and their kind remarks. I loved seeing it in my feed all the time. I was like, this is so fun a year after it's out, you know? It is. I mean, it's incredible. They timed it with the paperback release for the book, so it's perfect because the next book comes out in just a week, so a lot of people are now saying, oh, we can't wait to read the second book in the series.
0: Yeah, it's smart timing.
1: It was.
0: But what do you hope readers take away from A Blizzard of Polar Bears?
1: I hope that, first of all, that readers fall in love with these creatures like I have. I wanted to tell a suspenseful tale that would thrill readers. And at the same time shed light on the plight that they're facing. I think that we see a lot of these photos of polar bears, you know, starving polar bears on a small ice floe, and climate change is certainly the biggest threat to them right now. But they also face other threats as well, particularly environmental pollutants that get into their bodies, and that can weaken their immune systems and their health. And then on top of that, with Global warming, reducing the ice pack, they are unable to hunt from the ice to hunt seals, which is their number one important food staple. They eat the fat from the seals to bulk up so that they can survive over the long summer where they they just fast, they starve for the entire summer. And because ice is forming later and later in the year, because it's warmer, and then it's breaking up much sooner. That stint of time that polar bears can actually hunt seals is really shrinking. So they're starving for a long time. And mother bears, of course, can't nurse their young as long because they just don't have that much fat and that much milk to pass on to their young. So it affects the infants, too. And then that, of course, reduces the population. So
0: it's a cycle and it just kind of keeps getting worse and worse.
1: Exactly. It does. It's, it's really disturbing. And so what I really hope readers take away from this is compassion for the polar bear. And in the back of the book, just as I did for A Solitude of Wolverines, there's resources where you can learn more about polar bears and even places where you can volunteer to help them and learn more about them. For example, there's this really cool project called the Whisker Print Project, and It's a non-invasive way of IDing polar bears. So if you happen to be up in the Arctic and you see (laughs) polar bears and you have a very long telephoto lens, you can take a photo of the bear's profile of its muzzle. Every bear, polar bear skin is actually black under their white fur. So where the whiskers are growing, there's black spots on their muzzles where the skin's showing through. And it's unique to each bear, just like a fingerprint. So now they're collecting these profile shots of polar bears as a way to identify individuals without having to tranquilize them and tag them and all of that. So it's a nice non-invasive way to add to this database of what polar bears are where and how they're using the habitat and so on. Oh, I love that.
0: I would love to be up in the Arctic, but I'm not sure I will be anytime soon.
1: (laughs) It's a beautiful
0: place. (laughs) And just so different, you know, that's one of those places that I would love to get to someday. It's just gorgeous. It's magical. I'm sure it is. And then you work on all sorts of environmental issues when you're not writing. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. So in addition to being a writer, I'm also a wildlife researcher. I mainly do species presence surveys. So I'll go to a tract of protected land and bioacoustics is my specialty. So I'll set out recorders and I have an ultrasonic mic and a regular audible mic. And I set these recorders out and then I can withdraw, which is great because wildlife, when there's no humans around, they tend to use the habitat as they naturally would instead of being scared off. So it's a great non-invasive way to see what species are using a particular piece of land. So the ultrasonic mic I use to record bats. And the audible mic I use to record wolves, birds, amphibians. And then I come back, usually weeks later, and I retrieve the recordings, and then I go through them to see what species. So I can identify bird songs, for example, or frog calls. And then with bats, because we can't audibly hear them, I actually look at visual representations of the calls. And each bat species has its own unique echolocation signature. So depending on the shape of the call, for example, or the time between echolocation pulses, I can identify what species was out there echolocating for prey. And it's really neat. You can actually see what they were doing at the time. That is really cool. For example, if they're getting a drink of water, you can see that they pulse, pulse, pulse as they approach the water, and then they pulse really fast as they get close to the surface like pulse, 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 and you can actually see in this visual representation of these recordings a reflection of the water, so it'll look like the pulse is happening twice because it's reflecting off the water's surface, so I can see, oh, this bat was using this as a water source, and same with insects, you can see that the pulse speed up as they approach the insect, and even what we call the feeding buzz as they close in on the insect and and get it,
0: Okay, that's absolutely fascinating and something I don't know very much about at all.
1: Bats are my jam. (laughs) I love them. (laughs) Well, and I remember
0: last year when we spoke, you were looking at the impact of these fires on bats. And so I've thought about you several times in the last couple of months with these terrible fires in California. Are you still working on
1: that? I am, absolutely. So a few years ago, I started a project here just recording bats in the Tahoe Basin, the Lake Tahoe Basin. And there were a few late summers, early falls, where it wasn't choked with smoke. And now every year, it's choked with smoke here. So I wanted to know if bats are using the forest differently now that the air column is so filled with smoke and ash. And I wanted to know what species, are different species using it? Are species going lower or out of the area? So that's an ongoing project I'm working on. There's not a lot of data out there on how wildlife is impacted by smoke. There's some about how wildlife is impacted by fire, especially when it burns completely through an area. How fast does wildlife return, for example, but not a lot about
0: smoke. And what happens to some of the wildlife as well. And remember, there was a lot of talk about that in Australia as well when they were having all of those terrible fires, I think right before the pandemic started. And the habitat was lost for koalas and kangaroos. And that's interesting that the study of the smoke impact has not really happened much yet. You're on the, the cutting edge.
1: Yes, it's fascinating and, and heartbreaking.
0: Well, and the other thing I know you were working on last year, because we had a big, long conversation about it, because they're one of my very favorite animals, are the pikas. And we normally go to Colorado in the summer, but we didn't actually this past summer. So I didn't get to see my pikas. But how is all of your pica research coming?
1: That's going well. Well, the research end of it, uh, things are not looking good for the pica, unfortunately. I'm still studying temperatures along the spine of the Sierra Nevadas and then some spots in the Great Basin in Nevada. And I'm continuing to look at historical records of pikas, like where John Muir, for example, wrote that he saw a pica back in the late 1800s. And I'll go to that site to see if pikas are still there. And unfortunately, it's not looking good.
0: I remember last year I was telling you that I had run into a researcher when we were in Rocky Mountain who was telling us that she thought that the pika was going to be one of the first animals in that area to go extinct. And so then when you're talking about not seeing them in certain areas anymore, I wonder if that will be the case. I hate that. I love pikas.
1: I know. I think, unfortunately, and that's really interesting that you heard someone in Rocky Mountain National Park say that because. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, their reasoning for not protecting the pica is that they think that they're doing okay in the Rocky Mountains. So basically, it's okay if they die out in the Sierra Nevadas and die out in the Great Basin, because there will still be some left in the Rockies. And I really disagree with this mentality. Obviously, it's not okay for an animal to lose a huge proportion of its habitat. Which the pica has already lost. So if researchers in the Rockies are starting to worry, which they rightly should be, maybe US Fish and Wildlife will look again at the data. They've been sued numerous times to look again at the science to extend protections to the pika on the Endangered Species Act.
0: And you know, it's interesting to me, and maybe you can tell me something that I don't know about it, but I wouldn't think the pika would be a controversial animal to protect. I love all these climate fiction, environmental fiction stories, and I always seek them out. And I've read several over the past year, and I know like the wolf reintroducing to Yellowstone was controversial because it impacted elk hunting. And, you know, some of the other animals that that get put into places or they're trying to protect them, there's a reason why the the local population is fighting back. But I can't think that the pika has, a, you know, a, is creating a problem that, that the locals
1: would be fighting back about. The problem with protecting the pica is that it would have to be protected because of climate change.
0: Oh, okay. And the
1: oil and gas industry holds enormous sway.
0: So that's the issue. They don't want to step in and protect an animal based on climate change, unalleged climate change, as some of those companies would like it to be.
1: Exactly. And actually, with the polar bear, which is protected under the Endangered Species Act since 2008, the oil and gas industries has an exemption. So the number one threat against polar bears isn't even being addressed under that listing.
0: And that's so crazy. And it's crazy to me that that happens with a variety of species. It isn't so much that the animal the animal should be protected, but there's some business interest for it not to be. I just find that so pitifully sad.
1: Me too. It's counterintuitive. And another yeah. thing about, you think about the wolverine, the pika, the polar bear, and The mountain caribou, for example, they're all species that are being threatened by climate change. And the Endangered Species Act, which is a great act, but it's sort of a 20th century act for 20th century problems. We need something more akin to an Endangered Ecosystem Act. Because one legislation that would protect against climate change in an area would then, for example, Washington State, If you had something protecting against climate change there, that would in turn protect the pika and the wolverine and the mountain caribou. So if we looked at something more holistically instead of these species as if they're not connected, they're not part of this web, it would be a lot more effective.
0: Well, and that is so true and was one of the things that I also was fascinated about when I was reading about the return of the wolves to Yellowstone is that not only did returning the wolves to Yellowstone help with the animal ecosystem, but it also helped with the return of birds that hadn't been there in 50 years and flowers that hadn't grown. So really, you remove one animal and it completely changes an ecosystem and you put that animal back in and you realize, oh, we haven't seen that bird in, you know, two decades and these flowers haven't grown this well in, you know, 3 decades. And so it is amazing how much one animal or plant or bird can impact an entire ecosystem. So protecting the ecosystem makes sense.
1: Absolutely. And your example of wolves in Yellowstone is such a powerful one because when they reintroduced wolves, the rivers actually changed course. Elk had been overgrazing on the willows along the river's edge, and with wolves keeping the elk population in check, the rivers were able to become more healthy. And the willow population was able to come back. And it's so connected. It's fascinating.
0: Well, tell me what you're working on next, because I always love hearing about these animals. And I'm so curious what the next animal is.
1: I chose for my third book, mountain caribou. I love them. I'm fascinated by them. And our mountain caribou in the lower 48 have lost so much habitat due to clear cutting of old growth that we had just a few left in the South Selkirk mountain caribou population, which lived in the northeast corner of Washington, neighboring with Idaho and the Canadian border. And the population kept getting reduced and kept getting reduced. And conservationists were trying to get this population listed as a distinct population segment under the Endangered Species Act, which was unsuccessful. And clear-cutting continued. And They went down to about 17 members in this herd and then just kept losing more and more. And finally, Canada said, why don't we take the last two? There were two females left. So they took them up to British Columbia, although their mountain caribou population is also not faring well.
0: That's the only place I've seen caribou is in Canada.
1: Yeah, so mountain caribou are different than the barren ground caribou a lot of people picture. Oh, okay. The barren ground caribou that live in the tundra of, say, Yukon and Alaska, and they roam in these vast herds of thousands of caribou across the tundra. Mountain caribou are a thing of their own. They live in very steep mountainous terrain and very small herds. So during the winter, they go up this very steep mountains, and the snowpack is so deep there That they can reach these lichen they depend on to survive the winter. This particular lichen grows very high in the branches of old growth trees. And so the snowpack allows them to stand on top of that and reach the lichen. And this lichen takes many, many decades to grow in 100 plus year old trees. So because this old growth has been cut, it means that the food source that these mountain caribou depend on during the winter is gone. And on top of that, logging roads have allowed wolves to hunt the caribou, which is not their normal prey. Normally, wolves in this area feed on moose and elk, and they have a predator-prey relationship with them. So, for example, if the wolves eat a lot of moose, the moose population goes down, that makes the wolf population go down. So then the moose population rebounds, and then the wolf population rebounds. But they don't have this relationship with caribou, Because they can still eat moose or deer if the caribou die out, so the logging roads, snowmobile roads, have all allowed wolves to access this high country where normally caribou would be safe from them. So, sort of a double whammy of overlogging and wolf predation has led to this dangerously steep decline. It was only after the last two caribou were gone that Fish and Wildlife Service finally listed the South Selkirk population as a distinct population segment under the Endangered Species Act when there were none left. Oh
0: my gosh. It's like, come on, people, you could have really helped out a lot sooner.
1: Yes. So what's gonna happen to your
0: caribou in the book?
1: In the third book, the land trust that Alex was working for in the beginning of the series with the Solitude of Wolverines tells her that they have a preserve up on the border of Canada in Washington State and that one of the remote cameras has picked up what they think might be a mountain caribou. And they want Alex to travel there to confirm the sighting. That sounds really good. Oh, I'm glad. And she is confronted with more than just trying to find a lone animal on this vast tract of forested, steep, mountainous land. There's a lot of unrest in the area. There's a clear-cutting project that's been halted due to a moratorium. And there's angry loggers there and activists and the dead body of a National Forest Ranger is found strung up in the park of the nearest town, and Alex learns that another hiker has gone missing in the area. Oh, that sounds
0: wonderful. I can't wait. And it'll be out next fall?
1: It will be, yes. Fall 2022. Oh, good. And what's it going to be called? It's called a ghost of caribou because mountain caribou are so elusive, they're often referred to as the gray ghost of the forest. Really? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love that. Oh, that's so exciting. Well, I cannot wait. Thank you,
1: Cindy. Well,
0: before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked?
1: I read two nonfiction books I really enjoyed. One was called What We Think About When We Try Not to Think About Global Warming. And it's by Per Espen Stoknes. And it was a fantastic read about how to get out of the doom and gloom of thinking about the climate crisis and frame things in a more helpful way that might inspire action, like imagining the bright future we'll have and how to work toward that instead of imagining the terror we're about to face or are already facing for those of us in California. Right. And the other book I read was called Drawdown. It's an edited book with about a hundred ideas presented by different scientists about how we can change our current practices to cut down on carbon dioxide. So that also was a nice, hopeful read. Uh, Lots of ideas about how to change farming, for example, or do carbon sequestration. And that was a fascinating read.
0: That does sound fascinating.
1: I enjoyed it. And fiction-wise, I just read two great historical mysteries. Uh, One was called Murder in the Crypt by Irina Shapiro. It was set in 1866 England about a lord who helps a, a local constable investigate a murder. And that was great. She has a, a series that was the first in the series. And the other one I read was Inspector of the Dead by David Morrell, which is set in 1855, London. And it features this infamous true-life person, Thomas De Quincey, who uh, wrote a book about being an opium addict in England back then. And he's an investigator of murders, and he works with his resourceful and intelligent daughter. So it's it's a really great series. I think that's the second one in the series.
0: Well, good. As always, I love chatting with you, and I'm so excited that both A Solitude of Wolverines has had such wonderful press and that a blizzard of polar bears is getting ready to head out into the world. That's just wonderful. Congratulations.
1: Thank you so much, Cindy, and thank you so much for having me as a guest. I always enjoy coming on your show.
0: Oh, I'm so glad you did. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please consider joining my Patreon as a page turner. Follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations From a Page bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to Maggie Garza for sponsoring this episode and I hope you'll tune in next time.